Are you looking for a mission-driven school that aims to educate leaders for business and society? Would you like to know how to get into that school, the Yale School of Management? Tune in for this interview with its Assistant Dean for Admissions, Bruce Delmonico. Welcome to Admission Straight Talk, the podcast dedicated to graduate admissions and helping you approach the application process thoughtfully and successfully. Your host is Accepted's founder and world-renowned admissions guru, Linda Abraham. At Accepted, our mission is to get you to that unforgettable moment when you read your acceptance email and shout, yes, I'm in, confident you'll be attending the perfect program to help you launch the career of your dreams. Welcome to the 442nd episode of Admission Straight Talk. Thanks for listening. Are you preparing to apply to your dream business schools? Are you competitive at your target programs? Accepted's MBA admissions calculator can give you a quick reality check. Just go to accepted.com slash MBA quiz, complete the quiz, and you'll not only get an assessment, but tips on how to actually improve your qualifications and your chances of acceptance. Plus, it's all free. Again, use the calculator at accepted.com slash MBA quiz to obtain your free assessment. It gives me great pleasure to have back on Admission Straight Talk and introduce Bruce Delmonico, Assistant Dean of Admissions at the Yale School of Management. He has been on the admissions team at Yale since 2004, became the director in 2006, and the Assistant Dean in 2012. He was last on Admission Straight Talk almost exactly two years ago in October 2019. Seems like a lifetime ago because that was, of course, before COVID. Bruce, welcome to Admission Straight Talk. It's a pleasure to have you back on the show. So much has changed in the last two years. It has, Linda. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. Uh, it does feel like a much longer than two <laughs> years since we last uh, <laughs> yeah. had this conversation. Right. Well, we're going to do some review from the last conversation. So for those, and but some, most of it's going to be new. So I would actually recommend that all listeners also listen to your previous interview, which is at exhibit.com slash 338, exhibit.com slash 338. But let's start right now. This is the part that's going to be duplicative, and that is, can you please provide a basic overview of the Yale SOM MBA program for listeners who may not be that familiar with it, focusing on its more distinctive elements? Sure. Happy to do so. Yeah. So uh, here at Yale, we have a full-time two-year MBA, which hopefully the listeners are familiar with the general structure of the MBA program or an MBA program. Um, I think some of the things that make our program distinctive are the fact that we are very sort of mission-oriented. Our, our founding mission is to educate leaders for business and society. That's a very broad, very multi-sector mission. I think that definitely does animate and influence just about everything that happens here at the School of Management. So for for you know for students who are here, for those of your listeners who, who come here to Yale, um, that means a few things. It means that you will have uh, your your the first year of your experience, the core curriculum uh, consists of our integrated curriculum, which is different than you would experience at other business schools. And I think that's one distinctive aspect. And we can go more into that, uh, but I won't I won't bore you with the, the, all the details now. But uh, it's it's a very integrated, as it, as the name implies, a multidisciplinary approach, really trying to get our, our students to think very broadly across disciplines, across functions. Uh, we also are case-based, but we have our own case writing team. So we use raw cases, as we call them. Uh, that's another distinct feature. And and I think, uh, you know, although it's become more more common, we've had, we do have a very global orientation and a uh, whole so menu of global opportunities that exist here. And that's actually a required part of your your experience here at Yale. And I think that was something, you know, that again has become more common. But that's I think we were the first for school to really make that a, a required part of the, the experience. And so I think those are just a few things. Yeah. 
exactly. we'll touch on the, we'll get to the global a little bit later, but okay. can you go back? What's the difference between a raw case and a more traditional case? Yeah. A cooked case, as we call them. I, I okay. So okay. that is, yeah. So raw uh, cooked. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So we, we tried, <laughs> and this, so the idea behind it, you know, the names try to give a little bit of a sense of a little flavor for what the cases are about. So a traditional case or a cooked case, as we call them, um, involves, you know, the case writing team. So doing the research, gathering all the materials, and then kind of distilling it all down, boiling it all down into a you know ten to twelve page document that kind of you know kind of leads the reader to a, a single point or kind of a like that thrust of the case. And it's trying to make it's kind of very linear and makes kind of a sort of one kind of culminating point. And and the idea is that all the things that are irrelevant or extraneous are kind of weeded out, and the reader doesn't need the student doesn't really need to worry about that. Um, so the insight that, I, that I, the, the faculty had here at Yale is that that's really not how you experience information in the real world. Uh, and, you know, when you are in all, all of our all the listeners here who are you know, in jobs and in, 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 at work and having to, you know, doing, you know, find, finding solutions to problems, you know, the, they're not they're not given, a, you know, a, a 10 page document and said, OK, here's all that you need to know. Go figure out the answer. Uh, much of what you what you have to do is, is know, find out what's relevant, you know, figure out what facts you need to know and try to fill in gaps if they're missing or try to reconcile, you know, inconsistent pieces of information. And so that's how our cases are constructed. And actually, we have our case writing team came from schools, other schools that have case writing teams. And what they do is they do all the research they would do at other schools, but then they give all that research to the students. Um, and so you get, you know, as a student, you will get the, all that raw material, all the real world material that you would get, you know, in 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 your professional life. So you get so earning statements, you get, you know, um, you know, securities filings, you give sort of quarterly reports to your 10Ks, 10Qs, you get media coverage, you get interviews with key stakeholders, all the things that you would experience as a professional. And the idea is that that's that skill is as important, if not more important as figuring out the solution because of how you frame a solution. We actually have had, have had a course called Problem Framing. How you frame the solution, how you set it up, really dictates what the outcome is. And so we're trying to teach our students, even in the classroom, we're trying to give our students those real world skills of learning how to sift through information, learning how to make sense of information because that's such a cr critical skill that you need to learn. And so that's how our cases are constructed. That's what we call them raw versus cooked or you know, Yale versus traditional. Yeah, well, I'm just thinking about the, you know, we're all bombarded with information and sifting through it and choosing what to pay attention to is, is an invaluable skill. Yep. You know, it's uh, an increasingly important one. Yeah, no, we, we, we very much believe that's the case. Right. Now, the class profile for Yale SOM for the entering class of 2023 had some pretty impressive stats. 7.30, and you're smiling, 7.30 median GMAT, um, increased diversity across the board. To what do you attribute these developments? Because some might think that they're somewhat contradictory. Um, well, you know, I would say I would start by saying I don't know that our numbers are dramatically. It's not as though dramatically different than they have in the past. So I think our median GMAT, you're right, is is seven thirty. Um, and it, I think in the last few years it has, but I think the year before might maybe have dipped just slightly into seven twenty. But it's typically the median seven thirty. An average uh, GRE, I think, was like I think it was one sixty five, one sixty five, right. and GPA in the three six. And you know the diversity numbers have been, I think they're pretty consistent with where they have been in the past. To the extent they are, you know, both you know increasing on the um, you know on on all those dimensions. Uh, they have they are up a little bit. I think that's right, not dramatically, but definitely up a little bit. I, I think it's it's a, a factor of um, 
a few things. I mean, I think it's partly attributable, and I don't know what what other uh, admissions professionals are saying, but I think the the year was a very competitive year, and we had you know our one of the I think the top three application years in terms of application volume, and I think and I think that that um, I think that that played a, played a factor. We are trying to really focus on you know having a, a, a well represented class across all dimensions, and so I think that reflects. It's reflected in, in some of the numbers and, and not just in terms of the, you know, you mentioned some of the diversity numbers underrepresent students of color, but in terms of, you know, uh, citizenship and in terms of gender and in terms right. of professional background. So we really are, you know, we've always focused on this, but we really wanting wanting to, to make sure that we're paying um, particular attention. I think that's hopefully reflected in the numbers. All right. Um, I mean, in, in terms of the, the GMAT score, mm-hmm. certainly over time, there has been a tremendous increase in GMAT score. I don't just yeah. mean the last two or three years. Yeah. Um, not just for Yale, but but in general terms. Uh, you know, I, I can easily remember you know, 20 years ago that a 700 was a great score. I think that, yeah, I remember that too. I'm sure, I'm sure when you started at, at Yale SOM, it was, it was a really, really good score. Yeah. And now it's like, well, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing special. So I don't know. I don't know if the students have gotten smarter, if the prep has gotten better, the test has gotten easier. Uh, yeah, I think there are a number of factors. I don't know. I mean, I think there are a number of factors at play. I don't think the test here, you know, we talked to GMAC, um, you know, the test really, really hasn't changed. I think the, the preparation has gotten better, I think. And I think, and there are other things in terms of uh, the score reporting and cancellation um, policies that I think people can cancel whenever, whatever they want. And so they're only really re- you know, getting their, their high, they can keep taking, taking, taking until they get that score that they want. And then we don't see any of the other scores. So I think that's pushing things up a little bit. Right. I mean, we, we, this might be a little bit of a tangent, but, uh, you know, it's been quieter more recently, but there, but there was a period of time where we were pushing a number of us were pushing quite strongly for, for, for GMAC, uh, to rescale the GMAT because it had the the score inflation had gotten really out of control. And I think there is, there is actually quite frankly, a good bit of score compression, especially on the quant side um, that makes it very difficult for us to really get the kind of, kind of range, the kind of variance we need to, to be able to, to, to distinguish candidates in a, in a useful way. Um, so that is an area where I think it would, it would be frankly helpful for some rescaling and some, you know, to decompress some of the scores that would, right. would, would help us in our jobs, and I think would be more meaningful. So, but that's a that's a could be a whole other conversation. But I think there are a number of factors at play, and there's some of the both the, the preparation and the, the the reporting policies. I think are, are factoring into it. All right. Now we we've, we've touched on the fact that you know last time we spoke, COVID was not in our vocabulary for all intents and purposes. Maybe there yeah. were some reports already about something in China, but Wuhan, but nothing nothing every day to be sure. So I'm sure there were tons of COVID adaptations at, at Yale. What, which ones is Yale planning to keep? What, what has been the silver lining in, in this uh, situation? Yeah, I think that it's, it is funny to think back. And I, funny is not the, necessarily the right word. I actually, I, I was in China with a colleague in November of 2019. And oh, wow. we, it was just a couple of weeks after we got back that we started to hear. I mean, actually, while we were on the trip, people were starting to hear, I think. So uh uh, it's to think from then to here um, when all, all the things that have happened, all the changes. And we have, as with other schools, we've had to adapt really. I mean, Yale, we consider ourselves a residential program. You know, being sort of here on campus is an important part of the of the experience. And so this past year plus have been very difficult uh, for, for students, for faculty, 
uh, for really everybody. And I think that's the case across the board. You know, we're, we're, we're back on campus. You know, I'm on campus now. We've just, our, my office just returned. Students have been on campus all semester and we've, you know, knock on wood, Yale has very low instance rates and it's doing well and did have to pivot and, and make some major changes over the last year and a half. It will be interesting to see what, you know, to your question, it will be interesting to see what, what sticks. Uh, you know, this, the faculty, you know, has developed some expertise now with with um, online courses, and there's talk about having some of those extend beyond uh, the the pandemic, um, and thinking about different different modes of delivery. You know, we continue to, even though students are uh, fully in in class now, um, you know, we're obviously sort of still, for example, recording classes and having hybrid option uh, for students who are either you know are feeling under the weather or who are you know can't make it to class for for various reasons. So I think those things might endure. I think more broadly, this predates the pandemic, but the faculty is actually currently undergoing or undertaking a, a curriculum review. And it will be, so again, this was done, this was conceived of and, and planned independent and, and prior to the, the pandemic, but I'm sure that that will inform some of the things that come out of, of it, you know, beyond the different modes of delivery, the online coursework. I think there, there could be some even greater experimentation that comes out of it that is maybe inspired by um, this last year and a half. Yeah, I would assume that, you know, one of the things that we heard from many of your colleagues is that the ability to have visiting speakers has been enhanced because mm-hmm. they can, they don't have to physically show up. Yeah. They can virtually show up and talk to yeah. students like you and I are speaking right now. I'm in Los Angeles, you're in, in New Haven. Yeah. So, uh and, and we definitely had that. I mean, I think in particular, uh, Jeff Seinenfeld, who's one of our, you know, prominent faculty members, he had a course that's basically a leadership across sectors. And, and it basically was a class that, you know, every class would have basically two CEOs or two heads of, of organizations come and talk to class. And it was kind of, a, it's, it's, you know, cloned, you know, laptops closed, so, you know, books down, you know, it was very kind of confidential conversation with these sort of luminaries of the, of the sort of business and, and nonprofit and public sectors. You know, oftentimes they would, they would be here in person in New Haven, but sometimes they would be beamed in and, you know, that always, that happened pre-pandemic. And so we would, this, this, that kind of thing already happened to some degree. I'm sure that happened elsewhere too, but I think the difference is the, the degree of acceptance and the, the feeling that this is not, unusual, I think has only heightened the opportunities that exist. I think that's right. And I think that does open the door to more, uh, more of these kinds of sort of guest speakers, as you say. And, and I mean, not to turn it on admissions, but I think we've also, right. we've seen it that we, are, you know, last past year and a half, it's been entirely virtual and we're still virtual in terms of our recruiting. And even when travel resumes, we will still, I think, be heavily virtual in terms of how we do things. I don't know what the right, uh, the you know, ultimate balance will be, but it's been wonderful to really speak to and connect with people who otherwise wouldn't have been able to get to, you know, an event in Beijing or Mumbai or you know, London or wherever we were. And now, Timbuktu, where they really don't have it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's, 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 uh, it's really opened up a lot of doors, I think, for candidates too. So anyway, I think that's, that's a bit of an aside, but I think that that is an, uh, one of the changes that I'm sure will endure. Do you think admissions will, in terms of recruiting, and actually in terms of job recruiting also, will become kind of a hybrid balance where you have some events, but also offer online events? I, I think so. I certainly hope so. I think it's been a healthier balance. Uh, I think, you know, for the for the admissions and all, as you say, for for you know, 
career recruiting, you know, this this year is it will is continuing to be virtual for us, uh, and that was what the recruiters wanted. Uh, right. They thought that that worked well and that that was beneficial to them, and so, um, and I think it hopefully will continue to open up access and sort of level the playing field in lots of ways on on both the incoming student side and and, and the career side. The tough thing is, it's a it's a little bit of a collective action issue. You know, we have we know we intend to do and what we're hoping to do, but then. If, you know, to the extent, you know, another school says, well, we need to really be in person and to be effective. And then everyone else says, well, OK, if they're in person, we're going to be in person, too. So it could be a little bit of a, a race to the bottom. I'm hoping that we <laughs> settle on a, a healthy balance between in-person and, and virtual going forward. OK, that's good. And last kind of general question about Yale before we dive into admissions. Yeah. Now, and you, you touched on it, you know, Yale has its global studies requirement. Right. In the past, it gave also students lots of opportunity for, for global study. Um, it also participated in and co-founded the Global Studies Network, which yep. allowed for online classes uh, globally, right? Yep. And I'm guessing that COVID put a damper on some of the physical travel. Perhaps it made more yep. important the Global Studies Network or more valuable. But yeah. kind of where is Yale at now or hopes to be even in the upcoming year? Yeah, so we're, we, yeah, that's exactly right. That obviously the travel didn't happen. Actually, we, we have one of the global studies requirements and one of the global studies opportunities are these global network weeks, which happen through the global network for advanced management. This, the network of 30 schools that you, that you mentioned. Our, our, our pivot, you know, in March of 2022, going hybrid happened. We're really within hours of people getting on planes to do these oh, global studies trips. So, oh, gosh. Um, it was very, it was very, um, sort of, very close to that, 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 you know, the timing was very, very close. Uh, and so since then, the, all these opportunities have happened virtually. Um, and we've been able to do that. Some of them were already virtual. So what we, what, what we uh, affectionately call Ted Snyder term this uh, snocks. Uh, he loves that term with small network online course, courses. Those always existed. Those were semester long courses that were virtual through the global network. And that you would be taking you as a Yale student, you'd be taking courses with students from the other global network schools. Those have continued throughout and they've expanded because those have been, you know, filling the void that, that uh, some of the other opportunities have, have left. And there have been these global network weeks that have happened virtually um, in the last so year and a half. Um, so those have been, instead of traveling to, uh, so, so coach university in Turkey or, uh, you know, uh, any, any number I'm trying to think of, so FGV in, in, in Brazil, you know, these, these opportunities were happening, uh, virtually instead. And those, that, that will continue this fall. And then I think in March, the plan is to start to resume travel. I don't know if it will be fully resuming or some, again, a kind of a hybrid or mixed sort of, um, um, in in person and, and, and virtual. My understanding is there, there are intentions to, to resume some of those, the trips then. And then for the, our current students who were affected by this, um, this disruption of the lack of opportunity to travel, we, we did, the school has invited them to the extent they can to participate in future trips, uh, as alumni, uh, because it is, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a really, you know, highly rated and, and really kind of, uh, think a special part of the experience and that people really do you know, regard well and, and, and would like to, I think we'd like to participate in to the extent that the people, the students haven't had a chance to do that. We'd like to make them whole on that opportunity. That's great. Okay, good. Is there anything that you'd like people to know about Yale SOM, uh, a common misconception or, or alternatively a common misconception that you'd like to dispel? Sure. I think, you know, I think they're probably, I'm sure they're more than one, uh, but um, I think the one that I hear I, I don't know if most frequently, but I, I hear still hear frequently. And again, I've been 
uh, to your point, I you know, started in the office in 2004. I, I, is, I think it's almost exactly to the day, my, I think, the 17th sort of anniversary Congratulations. of, uh, of my, of my start <laughs> in October of 2004. Um, and I think, you know, we've done, as a school, I think we've, we've come a long way, and I think we've done a lot to dispel one myth, which is that we're the nonprofit school. I, 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 it's always difficult to dispel that because I don't think it's wrong that we are incredibly strong in the nonprofit space. And we have lots of, of, of students, about a quarter of our class comes from the nonprofit and public sectors. And we have um, lots of students who then go back into those sectors or who came from the private sector and go into the, the nonprofit or public sector. So um, we're very proud of that. So I, I, I don't want to say that we're not, I want, I would say that we're not just the nonprofit school. I make it an and, an ampersand. We, we are very yeah. big on the ampersand here, the business and society. And I think we are, you know, all the sectors, it's not about one versus the other, but we have lots of, of, of graduates who, you know, I, I like to think of the SOM story who have success in careers that kind of span the sectors and will, will do well and, and understand the interconnection and intersection of the sectors. So I think that's, but that's, I think that's a, a, a a kind of myth that, that I think still lingers, uh, even though I think people know more about the school now than they did when I started and are no better that we're really, we really consider ourselves to be a general management school. And we really, we look to prepare our graduates to be successful in every sector, every industry, regardless of what they want to do. Um, I guess in sort of an ancillary myth uh, that, that I also hear a good bit of uh, is that, you know, we're not a, a finance school. And I think, frankly, when you look at SOM and Brand. you consider, um, so the people who have been and who are currently here and, you know, I, I think about sort of, sort of, um, sort of Andrew Metrick and Gary Gordon from Wharton and, you know, I work with Toby Moskowitz and, and, and others who came from Chicago and you know, just all the, just the, the luminaries who are here. Uh, I think that's, uh, Anjani Jane, who runs the MBA program, uh, says very consistently that, you know, we're, you know, more broadly, easily a top five finance school. I think that's right. Probably higher than that, but certainly, um, you know, certainly, uh, no, as, as good as any any school in, in finance. And you're, you said, I mean, a good percentage of your grads go into Wall Street, right? That's right. I don't, I I don't remember the percentage off the top of my head, but I know the consulting and finance are, are major industries. It, it yeah, That really is, and it, it, it has been the last couple of years, it feels like that's been even more, um, it's sort of consolidated around those industries a little bit. So mm-hmm. it's, it's about a third of our students go into consulting um, and about a you know, 20, 25% go into finance generally. And it tends to be mostly so investment banking and be also sort of PEVC uh, investment management, and then sometimes uh, diversified financial services. So um, yeah. Well, that's that's pretty strong evidence that you're not just a not-for-profit school. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's turn to the application. Yale sure. SOM requires the GMAT and the GRE. Obviously, yeah. there's been enormous uh, change in that field in the last two years. Any plans to either expand the number of tests that you accept or issue test waivers or go test optional? We don't. That's a great question. And we have seen other schools who are making moves in these directions. And we we, we have not done that. Um, and we don't have plans to do that right now. I, I think, I don't know, I can't remember if we talked about this two years ago. Um, we're always, you know, we're always looking at different, experimenting with different ways to evaluate candidates and have, trying to broaden the base uh, and, and kind of uh, look at, at different different instruments uh, to, to evaluate different competencies. And, and really, um, GMAT and the GRE are predictive of performance, midpoint performance here in the program, but that's obviously a short-term metric. And they're very blend instruments. They're sometimes, um, there's sometimes people who score well who don't don't do well here. Some people people score modestly who do do well. And so we've looked for years, been trying to find ways to, to gauge or uh, do a better job of gauging sort of secondary and tertiary or finding secondary and tertiary indicators that will predict 
performance here. And then obviously looking at performance beyond um, school as well. So, you know, we have other things. We have a behavioral assessment that we've had in, had in place for a number of years. We use our video questions. We have other other instruments that we're using that are trying to gauge things other than tests and looking at us, things other than non-cognitive traits. So we'll continue to do that. And we look at those right now are supplementing the, um, you know, they're additive. Uh, we're, we're looking at ways we can make them substitutes for, and we've, we've, you know, we're, we're, we're still investing in that. We don't, I personally, I don't feel comfortable because grades and scores, and I would say actually sort of grades are frankly more predictive than scores when we're as between the two, but to the extent that those are doing work and adding value in the evaluative process, uh, we're, I'm reluctant to take those away without having confidence that we are, there's no loss of fidelity in, in, in our evaluations. And I don't know, I don't know what other schools feel like they've kind of cracked the code. I feel like we don't feel comfortable just taking them away without having anything else to in, in their in their stead. So we're continuing to look. Uh, we were careful. We, we, we did monitor during the pandemic test taking behaviors and test taking, you know, test taking availability to make sure that people were not. And that's why we, for example, not this past cycle, the cycle before we added around, we extended the oh, test yeah. deadline. You know, everyone did that because we test centers were closing and people, you know, and before the online options came, came around, there was concern about what people would be able to do. So we wanted to make sure there was no gap and people were able to take tests, but the value of the test, there are two, there are two, you know, I'm kind of rambling now. There are two interrelated issues. There's test access and there's, there's, there's sort of the, the predictive nature and there are issues of fairness and equity that go into the test. And so we have to balance all those things. Um, that's what we're constantly doing. So we don't, we don't plan to wholesale, um, you know, wave tests or go test optional, but we are looking to see if there are ways we can build out. And we've already done that to some degree to build out an infrastructure that supports the test and kind of gives us greater context, give us a more, more, a fuller uh, picture of candidates than just those single data points. Got it. Okay. Now, one thing I, I will tell about the, the last interview is we went through and I think you already had the behavioral assessment two years ago. Is that correct? Yes, and we talked right. about the different purposes of, of each element in the in the application. I don't want to do that today because we still okay. have it, you know, sure, last time. Yeah, yep. exhibit.com slash three three eight. But I do want to ask you when the applicant hit, hit submit, okay, yep. they've they've got it all in. What happens? Yeah. How is the, how is an application <laughs> processed? Who looks at it? What do you like? What do you personally look at first or second or whatever? Yeah. You know, I personally, I think it's, it, it really, it's interesting. It, it, everyone has their own thing that they, they go to first. You know, I, I personally am often, some well, the, the elements are presented in, or in a certain order and you could just go straight through. And a lot of times that, that, that's the way people go through them. Um, I t- sometimes will jump to the resume first uh, because that's, a, that's a, like a snapshot. And I think that's to, to the extent of, uh, this is this obviously this conversation is about application tips, but to the extent people, I think there's an aspect of people's candidacies that they maybe spend less time on there. I think the resume is kind of an often underappreciated and, and under underused uh, element because that's really like just in one page where you give us a snapshot of you as a candidate, your academic, your professional background, your interests. Um, and I think that's often gives a good sense of someone, but I, you know, after, after, um, after you click submit, um, we actually, one thing I would say is we actually wait until after the deadline before we start our review process. So there's no benefit to admit, uh, submitting, you know, a month early. Um, obviously you don't want to wait till the, the very last second, but because that can be stressful for you. 
Um, maybe the day before. Maybe the day before. The day before is always a good idea. But we will wait till after the deadline till we have all the applications. We sort of clean them up, make sure all of the materials are in and, you know, the recommendations and other, other, other aspects of the application are in. Um, and then we tend to we tend to do a quick just overview of the whole pool. We do a kind of quick or triage is what we call it, just to see what the pool looks like, just the overall sort of profile of the, of the, of the round. Um, and then we will start to kind of go right into reading. We'll send some, we'll send out some interview invitations and we'll just kind of start digging into it. And every, you know, we, we make sure every application is, uh, has sort of two independent views. So two different people are looking at it and, and the major, I would tell you, the majority of applications will come to, comes to committee multiple times. We have an interview committee. Um, it's a smart subset of, of the, the overall admissions committee that makes decisions on whether to invite people to interview. And then once people have been invited to interview, and we interview about, I would say, uh, it depends, year to year, it depends, but I would say maybe a quarter to a third of, of, yeah. of candidates, and it depends by round, but, but um, get an interview invitation. And then people at the end of the round will come to decision committee, and that's the full committee who, you know, everybody, it's about a dozen, 12 to 15 people um, some you know, who are um, in admissions, the admissions committee, uh, making decisions on, um, the candidates that's, and that's sort of post-interview people who, um, will, you know, come for, for an ultimate decision. Um, and we're, everyone, it's a, to your point, everyone, I think probably looks at things differently. I tend to, I think consistently we look at the video questions, for example, last, I think, cause that's, um, and we have to be careful about that because that's where we're actually seeing the candidate and, we don't want that to sort of influence, unduly influence or skew our, our perception of, of the candidate. So we want to kind of, and we've talked about ways we can even suppress, there is in for some information we suppress so that we are not skewed, biased by that or skewed by that. Um, but we talk about ways we can even suppress more to make it less uh, sort of identifying so that we're not, you know, not, not imposing or bringing our, our any biases to, to the process or trying to minimize that uh, through sure. the process. Sure. Now you you said that you know you do this first. You do this overall scan, if you will, of, of the yeah. applicant pool. Are you looking like do you have a screen based on on GMAT or GPA or GRE scores? Are you looking for how many people are from specific industries or locations? It's not uh, not so much. It's not um, it's not reduce. We don't reduce to any single sort of data point or, or set of data points. We actually get a you know. Not surprisingly, we get kind of a, like a dashboard, a smash, snapshot. So it's just a quick look to see, okay. you know, that it summarizes all key uh, information in terms of sort of grades and scores and work experience and recommendations okay. mm-hmm. and, and all those all those data points just to get a sense. Um, we're not really, I mean, and we're not, we don't put our thumb on the scale in terms of things like demographics. You know, that's something that we will, you will, we will. Yeah, obviously we will run the numbers to see what the they look like, just to get a sense of what the pool looks like. But it's not, it's it doesn't inform in any in a major way what the decisions look like going forward. One of the more common questions I get is something like, "I'm an Indian male engineer, but I I grew up in the United States. Will I be considered an Indian male engineer? Or I'll be considered an American. Which bucket do I belong, <laughs> do I belong in?" Um, and and they're absolutely obsessed with this question. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's there's a sense that there is a single bucket that people fall into, and you have to be kind of one or the other. And there are people, you know, uh, and it's it's there are a lot. We have lots of candidates who are from India, for example, but studied in the states or from you know other parts of the world who studied here, or sometimes U.S. citizens who studied elsewhere. More commonly, studying in the states. It's 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 you know we're not reducing. <laughs> 
candidates to a kind of a, a profile in that in that sort of in a you know, I guess reductive way. It's not it's right. not as though uh, you know you are you are, and I, I'm trying to think of like it's not an either or that you're either Indian or you studied in the U.S. You can be you're an well, Indian candidate well, who studied in the would, U.S. Or not. My usual answer is well, you'll be considered an Indian who studied in the U.S. <laughs> The yeah. male engineer who grew up in the United States or, you know, some yeah. some such thing. The other yeah. thing I tell them is that it's every applicant's job to be at the end of the day in a group of one. Mm-hmm. Okay. Forget the labels, forget the yeah. groups. You're an individual and that's how you have to present yourself. Yeah. But I don't know. They don't listen to me. <laughs> well, I think, and I think the option, I mean, the, the related question that would, which we get a lot is just the sort of the, you know, I'm an Indian male engineer and you, gosh, how am I going to distinguish to your point? How am I going to distinguish myself? Yeah. And I think that's the, the challenge for everybody is regardless of what your background is or what your, what your profile is, you know, how are you, how, how do you sort well, of don't focus and, and, on what's most like everybody else focus on something distinctive. Right. I think that's right. And I think we have a lot of applicants, you know, if we have a lot of applicants who are sort of Indian male engineers, we also take a good number. It's not as though, you know, I think there's a sense that we're because people have a, a if, some people have a background that they feel is well represented that we're you will therefore take people who are not from that background and <laughs> not articulate does that it's, it's not that it's not, it's not like you don't take them because they're well represented you you, do, you know it might the competition is more intense i think that's true we take you know we take i don't even know you know you have to look at what you know the 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 what the denominator is really right. relative to the what the numerator like i don't know if we're right Right. Overrepresented, underrepresented, but we're certainly we're we're taking a good number of students from from various backgrounds who are well represented in the pool because they're well represented in the pool, and that's what right. we're you know we're we're that's working what we have. Right. Okay. Sorry, that right. was very a little bit of a maybe inarticulate digression. No, it was it was interesting. This is a, again, it's a question that comes up all the time. Now, if somebody is lucky enough to be invited to interview, what can they expect on interview day? I assume it's virtual. It's virtual right now. It will be for this first round. Um, and my expectation is we will be, uh, I'm trying to think for the rest of the year, we're planning on, on being virtual, but um, we'll see how things, what the university guidelines look like in the, in the, new, in the new year in 2022. So that part, you know, if, if we were on campus, and we always do some virtual interviews, even when we're on campus, when, when people come to campus, um, we do have a day set, of, you know, Put together for for people on campus though to sort of sit in a you know mock class and have lunch with students and, and do those things so we're trying to replicate that as much as possible because i think it is important for them to get a sense of of the community uh, and get a sense of what the experience is like and who their who their peers would be but the interview of me to your question the interview itself uh, are conducted almost exclusively by trained second year students um, and we just did a training recently uh, we do that with some some of it is is done ourselves, but we actually bring in people. We have, you know, David Crusoe from the, the, the Yale College Dean's Office, who's done this for a, a number of years and is fantastic. Um, and he's, uh, you know, he's, he's actually an expert on emotional intelligence and actually wrote you know, the Mesquite, which is uh, uh, the Meyer Salve Crusoe in, in emotional intelligence test. He developed with, uh, with uh, Peter Salve, who's the president of Yale. And so he comes in and helps train our students and does a great job. Um, and we have other training that we go through to make sure that our students as, are as uh, well calibrated as possible, making trying to trying to minimize bias, to, trying to get them. And actually, they're having a follow up session today to make sure to get feedback on, uh, make sure that they're comfortable with the, the interview process. But anyway, uh, so it's trained second year students. There are thirty minute interviews. Um, they've seen your resume. They haven't seen any other part of your application. And, and we do use 
a, a, a structured interview process. So it's um, everybody is receives the same questions in the same order in the same way. You know, I think that people are sometimes concerned that might feel less personal, but I, we feel it's really important for for the evaluation purposes, for the predictive purposes, for them to be structured. You know, unstructured interviews really have no predictive value. And to the extent we want this interview to be sort of meaningful part of the evaluation process, we, the, having it structured um, is the really the only way to go. And they're not, they're pretty straightforward questions. We're not trying to trick you. We're not trying to ask any sort of, you know, some you know, market sizing or how many, you know, how many quarters are in the Empire State Building or any, any number of things or how many sort of golf balls could you fit in a, a, a 747. Um, it's really about your your um, your your and your graduate management plans, your post MBA plans, some behavioral questions that I think you should be expecting. Those kinds of questions you expect on a on a job interview. So I, I, we're really not trying to trick you. We're really just trying to get a better sense of you, and then obviously give you a chance to ask questions and learn more about us. Um, so it's a, it tends to be a two way conversation um, in, in the end when when there's a chance to ask questions. Thank you. Now what's Talking about the application. So that that could be, you know, the written application, the behavioral judgment test, or the video, or the interview. Uh, what's the most common applicant mistake? What do you what do you see? Yeah, that's a good question. It's so, and there's so many different ways to, to answer that. And I think you could focus on some of the more technical aspects of you know things that people do wrong or um, ways that people, you know, the silly mistakes that people make that, that they, they're easily kind of proof for the proofreading or just simple, simply passing their eyes over could, would catch. Um, I think higher level, uh, piece of feedback I would give that, you know, I, I give another context too. And I, and I think other people probably do as well. It's kind of the, the be yourself flavor uh, of, of advice, but I, I, I and I, I don't want to make it sound, you know, like a sort of platitude, but I think, I think people do, and I guess it kind of touches on some of the other things we're talking about which in terms of sort of coming from a, a you know, what you feel is a, a, an overrepresented uh, potentially demographic in the applicant pool or um, uh, applying to a school that you feel has a certain personality. And I think there is a, a tendency in, in different ways to try to shade your candidacy either to kind of fit the school you know, like Yale's a nonprofit school, so I'm going to be a nonprofit candidate, or you know, this other school is the, the finance school, so I'm going to be a finance candidate there, or in operations, or marketing, or whatever it is, and also to try to distinguish yourself in maybe some non-organic ways, like to trying to create some point of differentiation. I don't think it's not possible to to do that out of thin air, and I think that ton comes across as as a hollow. And so I think it's. Oh, yeah. I, th- I think it's important. Yeah, I think it's important not to sort of deviate from 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 who you are, uh, and and not try to sort of get it. I mean, you hear this from other schools, I'm sure, not to try and get in our heads and, and predict what we're looking for, or what we're thinking, because we're not at this point. Every there is no, you know, finance school. There's no marketing school. There's no opera. You know, every school, any top school is going to be strong in, in a number of different areas, and they're not looking for any, you know, all one. Kind of candidate. I think one of the, one of the things we we talk about quite a bit is the the strength and diversity and how we want to have a very diverse student body across a range of dimensions and how that informs and influences the classroom experience. How it makes you know it, it enriches uh, discussion. It it it, it expands uh, perspectives and it expands your people's minds. You think you know you learn and think differently. And and if you're in an environment where people 
have different perspectives and different viewpoints than you do if you're in a in an organization where everybody already thinks and, and feels the same way. That's not that doesn't that doesn't help you kind of grow. Um, so anyway, so that was a little bit of a digression, but we do. I think I think that's and there are different ways that that can manifest itself in terms of not you know not trying to predict or kind of shape who you are in an kind of uh, in an artificial way. I think there's a there's a balance in obviously and you wouldn't want to read uh, applicants applications that presented everything about the applicant, right? That, mm-hmm. That's not the idea. The idea is that they present what, what is most salient. Okay. Right. But authentically do so. Otherwise they do come across as shallow or hollow or, or just not real. Right. Um, so I think, I mean, I think there, there is, a, a legitimacy in them trying to present the part of their background that best answers the questions. Cause that is right. what you want to know. Yeah. But it has to be with authenticity. Yeah. No, I think that's right. It's actually uh, it's just out of camera here and I've got yeah. this background on, but yeah. I have a, a one of the, the picture I have in, in my office is a framed New Yorker cartoon where it's a uh, parent's, and a child outside a door that says admissions and the father's and there's a little child there and the father's speaking to the child. And he says, now remember, be the yourself we talked about. Uh, <laughs> and I think that's kind of how a lot of admissions is. It's a very initial process. We, you, we get little insights into you and very discreet pieces of you. Um, and so there is opportunity for you to present those pieces that you think make the most sense based on sort of who we are or who, who, what part of you the you want to present. Um, I think we work very hard at Yale to broaden the base of information we get. So it's not, it's, even though it's discrete pieces, they're very balanced pieces. And we work very hard in terms of crafting the application and the information we're trying to receive to make it be complementary and very, I think, hopefully not over indexed in any one area. It's not just about grades or scores or these one few things, but really about as much about you, um, you know, in a sorry, I, the word holistic is overused, but in a holistic sense as possible. But I think that's, and I think there is, to your point, I think there is some room for candidates to say, you know, I think I know a little bit about Yale, what Yale's about. So I can kind of present these examples that maybe are a little bit more you know, consistent. And, but I think you definitely want to be led by, I guess, the larger point, you want to be led by what this school is asking. Don't try to shoehorn in um, this this anecdote at this point you want to get, if the school is asking for something else or the school is right. looking for other information, you have to kind of meet the school where it is and what we're asking for and what we care about uh, because we all have largely overlapping applications in, in, some, in some ways, but they're all different in other ways. Um, I mean, they, Well, you they, have a very, Yale has a very distinctive application. This question is distinctive. The essay, well, the one essay question is distinctive. You do have the video essay, which some schools have, but most don't. Mm-hmm. You also have the situational judgment test. So you have a very distinctive application. Yeah. And I think we've constructed it very intentionally to, to again, to, to draw out different complementary aspects of a candidate's profile um, so that we do have, as I said, a very balanced perspective. And so, and so the idea is that, I guess the mistake is trying to kind of, don't try to work against that too much, you know, kind of understand what the schools are asking and, and and go with it. It doesn't mean you can present your, you know, you know, shade things in some ways that, that in ways that you, you feel would be helpful to you. Obviously that's, that's what part of what an application is, but don't go, you know, don't be an investment banker who right. says, oh, right. Yale's at the, at the nonprofit school. So I'm going to say my post MBA goals are in the nonprofit space. That's not, that's not going to help you. It's just going to look like you look, you know, did the application look disjointed? Yeah, we had, we had, a, a this brings to mind, I mean, we've had many clients in this, basically have tried this, but this one particular client stuck in my 
sticks in my mind for, for a variety of reasons that I'm not going to go into now, but he um, was applying. He's a reapplicant. He was a reapplicant when he came to us and he had what he ordered what we call a rejection review. Mm -hmm. So the, the consultant that gave him the rejection review actually at one time was at Yale SOM. Okay. And she told him that, uh, you know, as, as an admission, as an admissions director, assistant admissions director, and she told him she wouldn't have admitted him either. And he said, why wouldn't you have admitted me? He said, she said, because your goals don't match what you had done in the past. He had a strong finance background. He suddenly wanted to be an entrepreneur. And he said, well, that's what my friends told me was the end goal this year. So I said, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> said, well, what do you want to do? He says, I want to go back in finance. I want to be, I don't know, investment banking, PEVC. I don't remember what the detail was. It was, a, it was several years ago. But she says, well, why don't you? write that. It'll make a lot more sense. It'll be authentic. You'll be able to write more easily about it. And that's yeah. what he did. He did get accepted. Um, I don't remember which school, but it was a top finance program. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, but it, there was that, that whole thing of authenticity or hollowness, shallowness, conversely, yeah. and it made an enormous difference. Yeah. Just made an enormous difference. Yeah. Let's move on. I know you're going to, yeah, I'm looking oh, at sure. the clock and it's, and you're going to run out of time and I don't, I don't want to impose too much more now, some applicants, but I, I think this was a really good conversation. And I really want to direct listeners. If you want to know, because Bruce in the last um, podcast that we did went really into detail into the rationality and the purposefulness of the different elements in the application. And when you talk about holistic, it's not just this fuzzy term. He really, really explored it. And that's at exhibit.com slash 338. All right. Now, going forward, yeah. some applicants have specific element, elements in their background that keeps them up at night. How do you view applicants who had a dip in grades? And there's, there's two very different kinds of uh, situations I'm going to ask you about. Okay. How do you view applicants who had a dip in grades or perhaps a period of unemployment due to depression or emotional illness? Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously the caveat I make for every any comment is that, you know, we look at every application individually based on the overall profile. So we're, it's, t it's tough to talk about, you know, pull out any one element and talk about in isolation because it's all, it really only derives meaning in the context of the overall application. But right. in those instances, you know, if you had a, uh, if there was sort of a mental, you know, the mental illness or some sort of, sort of emotional uh, 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 challenge that that caused a period of unemployment or, or a dip in grades. We will, you know, you should uh, add, put that in your, you know, if you feel comfortable, uh, put that in your optional essay. I think that's a place to explain it because that's not something we would see elsewhere um, unless you put that made that your essay itself. You could also it might be something you talk about there. Um, but I, I, we we are looking for. We will see obviously the gap in employment. We will see. If that's what it is, we will see the different grades. If that's what it is, and we do look in the transcript. We we don't just look at the overall GPA, but we go semester by semester and look at the courses, and we'll look at the trends. Um, and if there's a discrete period of low grades or unemployment, if there's a certain abnormality um, or something that is atypical for your overall profile, you know, we will notice it. And so that, and if that's, if it's helpful to have that context, have that explanation. I don't know if the question is is really asking whether it's okay to share that or whether you know we're people are concerned about the stigma of uh, sort of mental, mental illness. But I think it's something that people you know if it's whatever it is if it's you know if it's depression if it's uh, some other other um, issue that that someone's dealing with um, you know that happens with people all the time and there are sort of it, it can be if it 
if you're showing that it's so transient, then you've been able to kind of overcome it and tackle it. Uh, I think that's something that speaks to other other values, and, and I think that's something that we, you know, it helps to know the the reason behind it. Again, if you feel comfortable sharing that, so that we can understand the context behind that sort of abnormality, and if, if it is in terms of your your employment or your your academic performance, and if it is transient, we have to obviously take that into context and understand that. Okay, and what about an institutional ac- action? Let's say an academic infraction or maybe a misdemeanor. If somebody has that on their record, is is that going to be a, an application killer? Yeah, it's interesting you ask that question because that's something actually this year we've made changes on that front. Uh, we did this start of last year and actually really more more fully this year um, because that's an area where we we are concerned that that. That that the, in the application review, people have their own values, their own judgments they they bring towards, or a DUI, or any number of other sort of infractions, academic or otherwise. Um, and we found that um, it's very inconsistent in terms of how that's your application readers approach it. Um, and it's really not based on any, uh, I think, anything other than their own views on this. Um, and we know that actually, um, so College Board I think has moved. I believe College Board has moved to su- suppress this information from the Common App. Um, they don't actually are looking, moving towards not not asking it. I don't believe. So actually, that's what we're what we've done, and we've we've done been benchmarking with Yale College. Uh, we're closely with them and other schools here at Yale to see what their best practices are. Um, and we know we so we actually suppress that information, any sort of academic infraction or, or criminal record. We the readers don't see that, um, and we only will that would only become an issue after a decision is is um, made on the application, because we don't want that to influence the outcome of the application. So that's an area where I actually don't know if, I don't know if we, we don't advertise that. I don't know if that's a little bit too sort of insider baseball, or I shouldn't be sharing that. But I think um, we think that's a smarter way. We're trying again. That's one aspect of. I talked about earlier about suppressing certain information. That's an area where we 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 don't feel like that's relevant to the application decision, uh, and it's only needlessly kind of influencing. I think it's gonna it's unduly influencing or can unduly influence. Uh, we try to make sure that it doesn't do that, but we worry that it, it could. So that's why we're trying to t- take it out of the review process and have it be a separate thing. Um, so where would it? Come in. I mean, would it only come in if, let's say, there's a background check, or, or is it something before the final decision that's that's brought in? If there was, yeah, we would only like as a probably a smaller committee would would. This is a change this year. A smaller committee would review it before any sort of final decision. Okay. Um, so yeah, so but we wouldn't want we don't want to to kind of inform the, the the general review process. We found actually that what we understand in doing research is that even. Yeah, people seeing that. So we've changed the wording of the question. So people, applicants who have an academic infraction or a criminal record actually are less likely to apply. They're less likely to follow through in the application process. And so that tends to be a deterrent to applying. Um, and so, um, and I think that was something that, that a reason behind the, so the college board, I believe that they're suppressing that information. I, I don't want to speak. I don't want to speak at a, at a school. Right. I don't, I, I right. don't know if that's right, but I think that that's, that's where they're going. So I think that's part of the reason too, is we don't want to, you know, um, till people's uh, p- people from, from, from applying for something that m- wouldn't, wouldn't really influence their uh, outcome anyway. Okay. And what advice do you have for applicants either applying this cycle or thinking ahead to an application next cycle? Um, 
Oh, geez. There's so, there's so much advice. Uh, <laughs> I think, I think I have to say, I think it's probably a, uh, I mean, a couple of things I would say is it's, I think this year is going to be um, probably a, 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 last year was a very abnormal, atypical um, year in a lot of fronts in a lot of regards. And I think there will be a turn knock on wood more to normalcy this year in terms of the application um, right. pool and the application right. process. So I think it's actually um, to the extent last year and the, in the year before were so kind of atypical. Um, I think Amazing. this will be hopefully a, 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 a better year to apply in terms of <laughs> those seeking normalcy. Um, and I think that, and I think hopefully again, knock on wood that the, the academic experience will be even more back to normal next year. So I think, um, I think the, the, the message from that is I think this is probably a, a, a good year to apply. Um, and next year hopefully will be as well uh, for people thinking about getting an MBA. Um, and I think the other thing is um, hearkening back to an earlier comment, you know, we don't have, for example, PRL can't visit campus now. We don't have campus visitors. We're not doing on, uh, on campus interviews, um, but we've built out all sorts of tools for people to be able to engage with us virtually um, both the admissions office um, we, these are things we've done even previously in terms of application guide and other other tools. We have a, a coming out with a virtual tour. Um, there are ways to connect with students. And I think these are all great ways uh, to learn more about the program. And I think I would encourage people to take advantage of them because it is a, you know, it's an opportunity, especially for people who I always, you know, campus visits are great, but I always, I always caution people not to put too much stock in them in the sense, and certainly that we don't put too much stock in them because only a certain subset of people can actually come to campus. They're close mm-hmm. enough, they can afford to, and we don't want to disadvantage people who, you know, live far away and they can't make it to campus. And we don't want to, so there's no, that place that, that um, has no influence in the evaluation process, but I'm hoping that because no one can visit campus, that's even more of a level setter and equalizer in terms of people's access to information and learning about the program and actually expanding the scope of, of what people can, can experience here at Yale um, even if it's not in person. So I'd say take advantage of those resources. Absolutely. And I, you know, just in preparing for the call, we had some great resources on all the elements of the application on online videos, written text. It was really impressive. Anything you would have liked me to ask you? We're running over. Uh, I, I don't know. I think we covered a good bit. I know we, yeah. um, I think we, we, you know, I, I don't, nothing that comes to mind. I think we covered a good bit of ground and it's always great to talk to you. And I really appreciate the opportunity and, and certainly look forward to, you know, sharing more information at other times as well. Great. Well, we'll definitely have you back. I want to thank you, Bruce, very much for joining me today. Where can listeners and potential applicants learn more about Yale SOM's MBA program? Well, I, you know, I would say som.yale.edu is our okay. website address. And I think that's probably the, the best starting point. Um, also, just you, if you have specific questions, you can always email us at mba.admissions at yale.edu. Um, that's our direct email address. Um, but also just som.yale.edu has all the information about the application process, upcoming events, student profiles, um, information about the curriculum. Um, so that's really the, the place to go. Okay, great. Thank you very much. We're going to include links in the show notes at exhibit.com slash 442 to the Yale SOM site, as well as Bruce's last interview, which I've been kind of plugging throughout this one, as well as to related articles and interviews. And they're all linked to at exhibit.com slash 442. Quick reminder, don't miss the MBA admissions quiz. Find out if you're really ready to apply and competitive at your target schools. Take the quiz at exhibit.com slash MBA quiz today.
Listener, thank you too for joining Bruce Delmonico and me for our 442nd episode. If you find the show worthwhile, please subscribe. Make sure you don't miss any future shows, be they with admissions directors, professors, current students, test prep pros, or alumni doing great things. Thanks again for coming. This is Admission Straight Talk produced by Accepted, and I'm your host, Linda Abraham. I'll talk to you again next week. 